Welcome everyone to episode 42 of the of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We are your hosts, Colton Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? And yet again, apologizing for the break. Uh, I think it's been two or three weeks now since we've had a recording between the holidays and a lot of other um, just IRL things. It's actually a very busy time, uh, not just because of the holidays and family, but also just work-wise for both of us. Uh, outside of this podcast, so it's, uh, it's a lot of real world gets in the way, unfortunately. But as always, we try to make these recordings so that they're relevant a month or several months later, so that whenever you're listening to this, it's not dependent on the actual recording date. So with that, uh, I'm going to jump over to our first topic of the day, firing your mentor. Uh, Remy, why don't you go ahead and take this and tell me tell me about what what that what what that is all about. Yeah, so any anybody who's up and coming in the business world, I, I think it's pretty normal to have some mentors. I, I've known a few people who didn't need mentors, but that's because they had good mentors earlier in life and they already had a good set of instincts about how to be successful. But for a lot of people, they get out in the entrepreneurial world and they uh, and you know you you look to a few people for advice and such. But you just have to be really careful about uh, not making the mistake of hiring your mentor in any official role. Um, simply because you won't be able to assess them ob- objectively because of the mentor halo they'll have, uh, especially if they helped you when you were in blind. Uh, and so you, it's just a complete roll of the dice whether they're actually any good at what, what you think they're good at or not. <laughs> and then uh, <clears throat> once that halo goes away, you could be in for a rude awakening, especially when that awkward conversation happens where you have to fire them for complete incompetence. And then... And then it gets even worse, right? Is then they'll come out with all these like they'll try all the unsavory tactics and stuff, right? Because I think it's probably kind of embarrassing for them, and and so they're going to be very hurt emotionally, and then they'll lash out at you emotionally, right? They'll appeal to, they'll they'll try to guilt you, they'll come with anger and insults, um, and uh, and it's kind of like just it's it's just a bucket of ice water in the face when that happens. Because uh, it goes from this halo to being like, wow, I, I was totally wrong, and all the evidence was there, and I just couldn't see it because of the halo effect. So uh, it's just interesting how that happens, and I think there's probably a few people it's happened to, uh, and either they didn't realize, they didn't wake up to that fact, and, and said advice or just continued on and, and kind of just milked the system, or they saw it and went through the same thing. You know, as you're saying that, I, I started thinking back throughout my military career. And the thing is about a mentor, it's it's not, we've got this idea in our heads that there's some infallible person who's always you know, above you in skills and knowledge and wisdom, but they're above you at the moment and you can very much outgrow your mentor. So I, my military career started off, um, you know, I started off enlisted and then got a commission about halfway through my career and you know, I was still in units with the with a lot of the enlisted guys who you know the sergeants and the the first sergeants who you know, they they went up the enlisted chain on their own career path, but when I was a private, when I was a specialist, these guys were um, they were my non commissioned officers. They were my boss. They were my mentors. And then when I went the commissioned route, I went on a whole new career path separate from them, and you know outgrew them. They went. Some of them stagnated. Some of them just never promoted. They just stayed right where they were because they were good at what they were doing where they were. Others, you know, they they branched in a different way and, and continued to grow. But I found myself in a position of being the mentor to people who were mentors to me, you know, five, six years before that. And it's a very weird dynamic when you, you think back on it. You're like, man, you, you used to be in charge of me. You, you helped me get where I am. Now I'm helping you out in the similar manner. And it's just, it's not a, a positive or negative. It's, um, but when in the situation you, you outlined, it can be very negative, but in general, understand you may outgrow your mentors. Like think of your own family. Think of the aunts and uncles you used to look up to who also stagnate in life. I have a few of them who, um, you know, the joke is I became older than you when I turned 16 and could hold a job. And that's, I have family members like that who, when I was a little kid, I, I looked up to them for everything and then I outgrew them. Um, it happens. A lot of, a lot of millennials are seeing that happen now with their parents as they're outgrowing their parents who are boomers going on booze cruises and becoming potheads and everything else. Um, mentors come and go. 
So that halo effect you were talking about, you have to understand that at some point you may outgrow them and you have to be able to drop the halo. And it can be pretty emotionally devastating when that happens. Yep. And part of this is uh, that same thing we talked about before, where by the time somebody's in their 40s and 50s, they're pretty much where they belong in life. And so if you have a mentor who's in that phase, one, why do they have time to be your mentor? If they're an all-star, they're probably going to be you know, in their prime kicking butt at whatever their career is. And so they're going to be carving time out of that very specifically to mentor you. Um, and so there's a lot of adverse selection in there, right? Like you're going to get a lot of people who are pretending to be highly talented, but are actually desperate to catch some, uh, some big break somewhere. And so they, they present themselves to people who are ostensibly underneath them um, doing great things as if they're, you know, super talented. But if you ask their peer group, they'll all be like, uh, I, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know if I'd take that guy. <laughs> That's so always a very it, good indicator. It's just hard to get that. It's hard to get that. Unless you're really well attuned to the way people communicate that, it's hard to perceive it. Uh, because a lot of times people have to be super, super careful about not maligning somebody else in the, in their orbit. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so it's just, it's that same thing. Like if there's a business that's sitting on uh, biz by sell for a year, there's a reason, right? <laughs> it's not that you were the first person to ever see it or the first person to realize its value. There is something that a lot of people have checked out and passed on. And it's the same thing with mentors, right? So either you have a mentor who's just a really good long-term friend who decided to take a special interest in you and, and made you their special project and they're making sacrifices in their career and family life to do so. Okay, that might work out. Um, or maybe they, for some reason, just see a younger version of themselves in you and they want to help you. Okay, that may work out. But pay very close attention to what they're passing up in, in the process of being your mentor because a lot of them are actually not passing anything up and not making any sacrifices. And they're presenting themselves as mentors because they're desperate. That's, that is the thing to perceive. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, again, just thinking back uh, when my father started his own, um, his, when he first started his auto repair business, God, 30, 40 years ago, many, many decades ago, um, he had all kinds of guys coming around telling him what what he should do, what he shouldn't do. And his first question was always like, well, what are you doing? What's going on in your shop? And the guys didn't own their own shop. They were working for other people or they had, they had their own shop and they ran it into the ground. And now they're coming and telling him what to do. And he's like, yeah, I think I'm just going to do the opposite because, you know, they weren't mentors, they were grifters. And you find that a lot. It's, you know, when you're, when you, if somebody's come to you and says, Hey, I ran a business into the ground. Here's everything I did wrong. That's something to listen to. But when they start showing up and telling you, oh, here's everything you got to do, and it's all the stuff they did that failed, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to ignore all of that. Thank you. That's a great point. Uh, they're not mentors. They're predators. At that phase, in their 40s and 50s, if they're passing themselves off as like super successful executives, businessmen, they should be working because they want to and not because they need to. So be very careful to, to recognize what their motivation is because they may be pretending to work because they want to. And in reality, they're desperate because they're predators and they can't actually, they haven't actually had any real success in their life. And so this is all they have left. Well, and I've, I've known scam artists who that's been their entire life cycle. They, they go from, they, they go from working, uh, the one I'm thinking of in particular, he always wind up working for a tow truck company. And from there, he'd make friends with truck drivers. And then he'd start finding people to give him money, oftentimes women. He'd, date, he'd actually date multiple women at the same time and get their money and credit and, and loan, loans through them. Uh, you know, they, they take out all the loans, start up a business, run it into the ground, um, leave all the women with the debt, and then, uh, you know, land at another tow truck company and start all over again. And it was like a 10-year cycle for him. He just kept doing this. And that was his... Uh, that was his whole scam. And he just, it was like some very early, it was a nineties version of the Tinder, Tinder swindler shit. Not, not nearly to that extent. And obviously he didn't have the internet and stuff to help, but the same, same general concept of I'm going to get women on the hook to pay for me. And I'm going to get investors. I'm going to get these other businessmen to give me equipment and other, you know, truck driving companies and whoever else has the equipment he needs, uh, uh borrowed and loaned to him and everything else. And 
once it all falls apart, he just moves over a couple zip codes over and starts all over again. So he must have had no real track record because anybody who was trying to figure him out just couldn't look any further back than a year or two, right? Because he would have just moved to a new area? Basically, um, it's it was in the Northeast where you have a huge population density. So like a lot of the Northeast uh, states and stuff, uh, towns and stuff, townships, you can burn yourself in a town of a couple hundred thousand people because the, the key players in your industry make it a small town, but you just move a couple of zip codes over and all of a sudden you're in a whole new area playing the same game. So, you know, as the crow flies, you're only 10 or 20 miles away, but that could be enough to get you into a new And without the internet, without social media, you know, this was back in the nineties, all you had was word of mouth. So as long as he was far enough away that, you know, the truckers, the tow truck drivers, the people weren't interacting, weren't in a place to interact with the last people he scammed. That's, that's how far he needed to be and no farther. You so how do you, go. Check, oh, go how do you check track record? How do you check references in that situation? Well, I mean, that's back then you, you really couldn't. That's why he was able to get away with it. I mean, now, nowadays it's a lot easier because uh, people's bullshit follows them. You know, you, you can do Google searches on people and social media searches and you find out real quick what people have been up to. That kind of, that kind of shit follows people now. It's, I mean, I haven't had to deal with any of this myself nowadays, but I know people are always stalking people's social media. And, and for the most part, you know, 99% of people have got their entire life on social media to the extent that you can't hide anything. Um, you're actually seeing a lot of crazy shit now on TikTok, which you would think TikTok being global, uh, or at least national on, on English-speaking America, you wouldn't be able to get away with shit. But there's constantly videos going viral of like, this guy motherfucked me and I don't know who he is. And all of a sudden, like, hey, I know that guy. And, and like they find each other. these videos find each other. It's bizarre. And I think it's going to get uh, worse about that. I think it's the ability to link people on their scams on social media to increase. Definitely. Especially if they have any sort of public presence on social media. Uh, that, that seems to get figured out really fast, like lightning fast. Um, but what's so what's the difference between a scammer and uh, and a delusional incompetent who's really good at marketing himself? That is a good question. Um, I mean, the scammer is going to be more of a predator, whereas the delusional incompetent, I imagine, is just in his own head. He's, um, I can't think of any real world examples on that, though. So, but I think the scammer is going to be actively seeking you, whereas the, the incompetents are just incompetent. They're not, uh, they're not going to have the trail of destruction behind them. Uh, so much like um, I, I had a boss 20 years ago tell me that every person gets promoted to their first level of incompetence so that's where you see a lot of these incompetent guys at they just they maybe they start a business they run it into the ground and then they're back working in that industry versus the guy who's coming into you saying hey I've got experience in this let's let's start another business like it's just going to be um, I think it's going to be in that nature I don't I don't know that you're going to have the uh the delusional incompetence, as you call them, trying to extract as much money from you. I think that's going to be the bigger thing is they're just going to be giving you a lot of unsolicited and bad advice versus a scam artist is going to be actively trying to get money. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you're going to lose money on the delusional incompetent, right? Um, if you give them any real responsibility. But uh, I mean, they, so yeah, they I think they have similar effects, different motivations entirely. But uh, the the delusional incompetent really good at marketing, I think takes a long time to figure out. That's what I found. I've gotten a good nose for the scammers, um, uh, but the delusional incompetence, they seem genuine. They seem to be working hard and they'll be, they'll be trucking right along. And then they will just suddenly hit the level of their incompetence, like a freaking brick wall. <laughs> and that caught me off guard. <laughs> um, and then well, it, and it's, it's always going to be something expensive too. It's not, it's like you said, it's going to happen all at once and it's going to happen metaphorically while your back is turned and you're paying attention to something else. And then you turn around and you know, they've cost you or, or on the verge of costing you a small fortune. And it's like, Holy shit, where did this come from? It's never a slow workup. It's just always while you're distracted with another major issue, they take the initiative, make a decision and it's horrible. 
<laughs> or you just don't realize that they haven't made any progress. That was the case in this situation. I mean, you're absolutely right. You, I wasn't paying attention to them. Back was turned, assumed they had it under control because their track record before looked stellar. But and, and it was just an incremental increase in responsibility. It wasn't a big increase in responsibility, but it, man, went right off a cliff. And I didn't know for a long time because I was busy paying attention to other things that I thought were much higher risk. Uh, and, and in the meantime, he was fucking this all up and really good at not, you know, <laughs> not letting me know. Uh, and then when I did find out, it was like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta put a stop to this right now, like right, right now. Um, so it was, it was probably more, um, I don't know. It was probably more surprising, um, but also not as scarring. It's it's scarring when you get scammed because you you have a hard time trusting yourself after that when you believed wholeheartedly. Whereas in this case, it was like, yeah, we were testing it out step by step. It just snuck up on us how quickly we reached the the position of incompetence. Well, and this is why you have so many um, owner operators who never scale their business beyond what they can do themselves. Um, my father's a perfect example of that because. He's had the incompetent people and he's had the scammers uh, both come through his life. More incompetent people, you know, he only got, I think he only got scammed once or twice early on and he, he caught on to that really well, but he could never get past the incompetence of his employees and it just made him lose all faith in it and he just stopped. He just stopped hiring people other than he had like two part-time guys who are, you know, didn't really count in this matter. They, they, you know, not significant enough for, for this example to be considered employees. And, but outside of that, he just never bought a pro, uh, pulled on full-time people, never pulled in somebody to be a mentor to so that he could sell the business. Um, and he just left it to the point where he never scaled, he never franchised, he never broke out of his one-man operation. And it's because he just reached a determination of, I can't trust these people. They're going to cost me, having employees cost me more money than I can make. And you know, and, and he was right. And he's right because, uh, not for the reason he thinks, you know, it's not his, a lot of the, these business owners, especially men will get the arrogance of nobody can do it as good as me. So I'm not going to bother to hire somebody, but it really comes down to is they don't know how to filter. They never learn how to hire a good employee. They never learn how to manage them in a way that uh, prevents their mistakes from costing you money. Um, they never learn that skill themselves. So it is cheaper for them to just never have an employee. They, you know, they're lacking a fundamental skill as a boss. And rather than cultivate that skill, it is easier and cheaper for them to just not have employees. And that's where the whole owner operator comes from. That's a great point. Uh, sourcing and managing real talent is a critical skill these days. And of course, everybody's gonna be like, oh yeah, of course you need to source and manage talent. But actually doing it well, I'm, I'm not gonna bullshit you. It's, it's hard. Uh, so many people will present the same as everyone else, and only through time will you realize who who has their shit together and who doesn't. Uh, it again, it's uh, it's surprising to me. Um, I, I've noticed there's something there's something magical about the six month mark. Like it's like even the even the best kind of you know um, concealers and and uh, whitewashers and such. Even them, even they they seem to struggle to persist anything or perpetuate anything beyond the six month mark. Like you just can't, you can't keep up appearances longer than that. Uh, what do you think? As soon as you said six month mark, I started thinking about dating because it's the same thing. You know, whether you're talking on your employees and business end, but also in the dating world after six months, the facade is dropped. If somebody has been showing you male or female, whoever, you know, that whatever they are, they're, they're loyal, they're competent, they're whatever, you know, they don't have a temper, they're, they're even keeled by six months, the act is gone. And you can see them for who they are by six months. If they're going to cheat on you, they've started cheating on you. If they uh, you have a, a hothead, if they're real temper, they've got that. If they're irresponsible with money, you've seen it. If they're going to try to take something from you, like by six months, you know who you're with. And it's actually the same problem on the business end and the, and the relationship end is, You've got a lot of time invested into them and you go, it's a, it's a type of sunk cost fallacy where you think, oh, I've got six months invested in this person. I should just, I should just keep trying to fix this. I shouldn't just drop them and move on. I've got a lot of time here. Let's, let's try to work it out. And it could be another six months or several years 
before you break up or fire a person should have been fired at that six month one. One hundred percent true. Uh, it's <laughs> that sunk cost thing is real. I've been there so many times, uh, and it's amazing how your your um, your ego can can prevent you from actually making an obvious decision <laughs> just because you it's so hard to acknowledge that you've just lost that money completely lost that money you want to think there's a way to re- resurrect it or, or somehow recover it no man it's it's a complete loss um the the best uh, quote i've seen for this is i've never heard somebody say man i wish i'd waited longer to fire them yeah and in the same regard have you ever broken up with somebody and go, wow, I wish I just waited three more months. Like no, it's a huge burden off your shoulders when you get rid of toxic dead weight that's costing you, costing you emotionally, costing you mentally, costing you financially. Once they're gone, every time you go, why didn't I do this sooner? 100%. Absolutely right. I didn't realize it until you said it, but the only thing I might say is even if it's not toxic, right? Cause those are the hard things to, to uh, recognize and take action on when it's toxic it's it's pretty hard to deny but when it's not toxic it's really subtle and then it's hard for you to to recognize the reality and it takes a lot of i mean it takes a lot of gut checks for that to happen and and sometimes some external people saying hey man pull your head out of your ass yeah well you gotta remember employment is not charity you know you're running a business you have money to make and as much as you want to be generous and keep people employed and they've got families and they've got rent and everything else they also have to produce they have to be making you money and not costing you money because you cannot you cannot run your business as a charity and just give money to people who aren't performing then everybody's going to be unemployed real soon and you are going to bear the brunt of all of that so you have to cut these people when they're not of value to you and that's an unfortunate way of phrasing it, but that's the reality. Uh, I would also say that, that giving them the feedback and moving them to a position where they, where they can thrive is the most beneficial outcome for them as well. It's not, you're not doing them a disservice by firing them unless they're one paycheck away from disaster and their family's going to fall apart. In that case, man, I don't know what's going on in there. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they, they have a lot more problems than that. And, and maybe, maybe they don't necessarily belong as, as a father of a family, right? Um, but, uh, if, if, uh, if you're giving them feedback in the form of moving on, right. Um, then that helps them find where they belong and everybody's just trying to find where they belong. Nobody wants to be in a job they suck at, uh, unless they're just complete waste of life people and they just enjoy, you know, feeding off the system, but nobody wants to be in a job they suck at. I mean, they're going to have to sit there and convince themselves every day they don't suck. And that's hard. What they want to do is find the place where they can thrive and be what, and, and be useful, even if that's still a, a relatively low position in the chain, you still need to help them find that. And you're doing them a benefit by helping them find that. Now, don't screw them in the process, um, but just understand that it's like, you're, it, this is the market giving them signals, giving them feedback that tells them where they belong and where they can be a benefit. And that's good for everybody. Now, have you ever had any luck with demoting somebody or telling them, hey, you know, here's all the ways you're screwing up. If you don't fix these things, I have to fire you. Or saying, hey, you're screwing all these things up. I'm going to demote you back to your previous level where you thrived. Have you ever had success doing either of those two things? No, it's always, well, let me think. There might have been one time where we moved him to a different department and they thrived and they were grateful for it. And that, that was a different situation. That was like everybody liked them. They just really sucked at their job. And it was just, they weren't, they weren't fit for that department. Um, that one seemed to work out. Okay. There's another one. I, I would say every other circumstance I've seen, it was like, no, you have to depart. The- yeah. I've, I've never had that situation go that way, but I'm just thinking at it where if you tell them like, Hey, you're screwing up at this. If you don't fix it, I'm going to fire you. I don't see how they, they fix it. Cause if they could have done the job, they would already be doing it. I mean, it's theoretically possible, but it's probably like communism only works on paper and then demoting somebody that's almost as bad an emotional blow as firing them. And I got to imagine they're going to either their performance is going to drop so bad when they're demoted, you're going to fire them anyways, or they're going to wind up quitting and moving on. I have seen people correct and, and thrive, but it wasn't, it wasn't, the correction wasn't externally applied. It was within them and they sought out the, the feedback and they were the ones driving the personal growth to be able to succeed. I've seen that a lot. But I have rarely seen somebody who had to be presented with, 
all right, here were the expectations. Here's what you, uh, here's what you did, and here's the difference between them, and here's why that's really important to us, and we need to find a way to close that gap, uh, or else we have to, have, you know, have you move on. That conversation is almost always going to end in firing, almost always, in my experience, uh, because the person who got to that situation either doesn't care. And they're using that job as just a way to launch themselves into something else, or they're just not capable of self-improvement and they're, you know, a below average employee. And if you can just cut out, as we talked about before, if you just cut out the bottom half of the employee field, it's amazing how productive the team becomes. Yeah. It's, um, I saw, I saw a video on this the other day, or maybe it was a podcast I was listening to, but how they're, they're explaining how like, you know, if you surround yourself with people that are smarter and better performing than you, you'll pick yourself up, right? But the flip side of that is if you have a bunch of high performers and you put a low performer with them, he pulls the low, the high performers down. So it's like in order for you to pick yourself up, you have to be in a position to pull other people down. And hopefully you're not pulling them down for a long period of time or in a toxic manner that ruins their productivity. Like it's a, it's a crazy balancing act that... Um, you can't put an underperformer with overperformers and just bring them up. Some, there, there's a penalty to your growth, and that's their current production. Uh, it's just a funny thing. And it's like, at the same time, you remove all the low performers from the high performers, and their performance gets even better. But the low performers miss their chance to get better. Um, so, I mean, we talked about that probably 10 or 15 episodes ago, just the time penalty for new skills. And that's kind of what it is from a employee production standpoint is there's a production penalty of getting potential high performers to a high performance level. I'm, I'm constantly amazed by how many companies hire through a formal hiring process instead of giving people a tryout on the job. So hiring them as 1099s and then gradually ramping up their responsibility so we, we got really fortunate in this recent circumstance where we were about to hire this guy in a major, major leadership role. I mean, he would have a tremendous amount of impact on the company, tremendous amount of responsibility, accountability. He was suitable for none of it. And it did not become apparent until um, we were ramping up that, that 1099 phase and he just ran into that wall of, of incompetence. Because <laughs> um, before that, if you just kind of took the trajectory he looked perfectly suited for that major role, and it was a complete shock. Uh, so I'm just a big fan of hiring 1099s, incrementally increasing their um, their responsibility, accountability, and giving them more exposure to everybody in the company to see who they jive with and what everybody thinks of them and giving an opportunity for like the real feedback to come out after that six months. And then you can hire full-time. Now, the downside of that is, are you going to miss out on a whole bunch of talent because the real talent isn't going to agree to that sort of thing? I don't think so. I think real talent, real talent doesn't have to get a job right away. Usually, if you're talking about like senior level talent, maybe a mid level talent does. Maybe they're they're stuck in the uh, in the wage slavery, and so they they can only entertain real offers that are going to pay them something comp- comparable or or more, you know, within a month of departing their old company. But even then, I think you could probably just pay them at what they need in order to survive, like pay them, you know, you'd be essentially overpaying for them as a consultant, but pay them what they need uh, while you evaluate them. I guarantee that's going to be way cheaper than hiring them as a W2, getting them totally embedded in the company and then having to pull them out and give them a severance package. Holy crap. Uh, So just a big fan of 1099s, scale up their responsibility over time, give them lots of exposure to see what they like about the company what your your employees like about them, what they can and can't do, because none of that stuff really comes across in a resume. I, I have zero confidence in resumes. Um, it's really in the game. When you're in the game, that's when you see the, the true talent. Um, so after that, then you can then you can make longer-term commitments. But keep in mind, the guy that we were hiring, we were about to hire in a major role as a W-2 with lots of equity ownership, and it was seven months in, eight months in, and suddenly we were like, holy crap, we made a huge mistake. Thank goodness it was right before that. Because <laughs> like a few weeks later, it might have been ugly. Yeah, and that's, um, you, you threw a lot in there, but I, I think that that technique would work at almost all levels. Uh, and the 1099, you, can, you don't have to underpay them what you would do as a W-2. Heck, you could even 
pay them enough to compensate for the benefits they're not getting as a W-2 employee. And I think you would still come ahead in the long run uh, because the people you weed out, yeah, you overpaid them on your, technically overpaid them on your 1099, but you didn't have to, like you said, give them the severance package and everything else, and you didn't get them embedded in the company. So that pay is just what you had to go through for a filter process. The people you wind up keeping that you put on a W-2 that you give ownership equity to, they'll have proven themselves so thoroughly that it will balance because at that point, you're not just hiring them for what they can do. You're hiring them for not being the people you, you kicked out. So I think that, I think that the technique that could become normalized and it might become normalized here soon because the, the whole resume thing just doesn't make sense. It's like, you don't lie on your resume. People do, but in general, you don't lie, but you, you only put the things that you think are most applicable and you exaggerate everybody. Exact. Anybody who tells you they don't exaggerate about their skills on a, on their resume is a, a liar. I'll just say that I'll, I will take that statement to my group. Nobody puts out a resume and doesn't exaggerate their capabilities because you're stupid if you don't. Um, so you have to read that and, and say, all right, if I were to give this person a numerical score, every person has to get rolled back 10 to 20% of whatever that score is, because we know the resume is exaggerated. And then they've left off the things that might be a negative to this job, and they've only put on the skills that are applicable to this job. And then half the time when you're applying to these jobs, you don't know all the details of the job anyway. So now you're in this interview trying to figure out what the job is, and they're trying to figure out what you left off the resume. And instead, you could just do a basic pre-screening screening, like you're saying to say, hey, you know, here's what the job is. Do you think you can do it? Yes. Okay, let's throw you in the fire and see if you survive. Um, that, I think we're going to wind up going that way. The most relevant question I've seen asked about a resume um, is what's not on this resume? Like, what is this resume not telling me? Um, why did this person leave this company? Why, why do they have these spectacular roles and, and are yet seeking a job with, with seeming like desperation, right? Um, what is what is not on that resume? What's left off that resume? Uh, <laughs> and of course, a lot of that is going to be fudged, fabricated, uh, or exaggerated in some significant way. But just start thinking about what is what happened in this person's life that's not on this resume? Uh, why did they end up here? Uh, because if they're awesome, they probably have a lot of other offers. Uh, you're not the first person to find out about them, right? There's a reason they're coming to you. What is it? Well, and we're also in the era now where people only work either one to two years per job. And it, you know, they'll have five or six jobs in a 10, 12-year resume. Uh, and that's becoming normalized. And the question you want to ask is, did this person learn a skill and move on to a much better position, more responsibilities, or are they perpetually jumping for $2 an hour? Because you're getting the, the full range of it. Um, especially in the cities where these mega corporations treat their people like a type, type of cattle. Um, there's no loyalty to your company, totally understandable. But what is your endurance for uh, as an employee? Are you going to jump ship the second you, you don't like the responsibilities you have? Are you going to jump ship for an extra $2 an hour? Or are you jumping ship because somebody's giving you, you know, a $30,000, $50,000 difference in pay because your skills are that much better? Right. So that's what you have to figure out as the employer. Are you dealing with somebody who is highly valuable and hard to keep because they're so valuable? Or are you dealing with somebody who's a narcissist and thinks that they're highly valuable, but really has no tolerance for um, for stress in the workplace and will leave you over a two dollar an hour pay raise? I mean, I would I would say that even if somebody is um, jumping jobs because they're highly desirable, that's probably not a person I want to invest in. Right. Um, I want to invest the per in the person who wants to work there for a long time and sees a lot of other benefits to that job than just the next step in their career. Uh, so that's that's just my personal bias. But I mean, the, the real issue is these days that everything is transactional, right? Um, vetting people has become a critical skill because everything is transactional. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, like online dating is transactional. Um, jobs are transactional. Uh, there's very little loyalty anymore, very little commitment. So the internet has created a highly efficient set of networks and connected people around the world, but the sheer transactionality of the internet has infected everything in society. So just keep in mind, there's no substitute for time. 
all things get revealed in time and vetting through a, a tight-knit network uh, during that time. So sometimes it takes longer, sometimes quicker, but it's almost always worth letting the dust settle before making a big decision. Yeah, so you mentioned, before I get into what I call the tinderization of society, uh, the transactional nature of everything, um, I want to add one thing to the employment side before we kind of shift topic there. Um, Gen Z and younger millennials would potentially stay on with a company a lot longer and not jump ship, but they are so afraid of confrontation that they will not ask for more responsibility, new job within the company, or a pay raise, even when the employer is willing to give it to them. So you you may have somebody who's working for you, they're stellar, and then one day they're just up and gone, and they just they don't show up. Like they, they don't even give you a two week notice. They're so afraid of confrontation, they just vanish. So you call them up, and you're like, hey, what happened? They go, oh, I got a new job. Like, okay, well, you didn't tell me. Well, this job pays me more. Like, how much more? $5 an hour more. Like, I would have given you $20 an hour more to stay if you had asked for it. Right? You just had to tell me you wanted more responsibilities. You, you wanted more in the company. But they're so afraid they won't do that. So that's something you, as the, uh, as the business owner, as the entrepreneur, while you're vetting these people, look for the, look for the people who are willing to say what they want in life. That's part of it. Because... You, you're going to lose somebody who's potential talent simply because they're afraid to ask you for a pay raise. Um, so that's, that's a new hurdle that we're dealing with. That's a generational hurdle. And it's something to be aware of, but I haven't seen anybody really explain uh, the best way of dealing with that. It's just something to be aware of and be on the lookout for developing techniques with these people. Um, wow. Yeah. Great point. And didn't realize it until he said it. Uh, I wonder if there's another way to handle that as well. Um, so imagine that that super known confrontational person who's like, "Gosh, I'd, I'd like a little bit more money," but they don't ask for it. I wonder if you can, if I wonder if you can really invest in those people in terms of like coaching and stuff. Uh, and, and again, it, this goes against my my philosophy of of uh, catering too much to people. I'm sorry, this is this uh, this ends up being catering too much to people, and I'm very much in the opposite. I'm very much in opposition to that because I think that you should filter people, uh, filter people and select the ones with the skills and the, and the character traits that, that you already want. And then you can add a little bit of extra polish at the end, but don't, don't try to polish a turd. And I don't mean a turd as in like they suck. Just if there's just some substantial non-fit for the role, don't, don't try to push them into it. So if you've got that super non-confrontational person, man, uh, you might invest a ton in them and they leave and, and that's pretty frustrating, but hopefully you can filter out that person on the front end. But what do you do with the person who's kind of right on the edge? So they're not non-confrontational. They just perhaps don't realize what they're worth. Um, and you want to put them in positions where you're going to challenge them and then have them go through that really awesome growth phase where they, they start to realize what they're capable of and nobody ever has ever given them that opportunity before. And those kind of people will just like, they will climb mountains for you. Uh, they will be insanely loyal because you're the one who unlocked their potential in life and you saw it and nobody else did. Yeah, well said. Um, so unless you have anything to add to that, I want to jump over to the kind of the, the transactional tinderization of things. You got anything yeah, you want to yeah. finish? Any thoughts on? All right. So um, if you've watched any of the clips on, uh, I call it the Stupid Woman podcast, but it's the whatever podcast is the name of it, or the Fresh and Fit guys, or really uh, Carl Davis is another one with the podcast talking about dating. Um, everybody, like the dating market right now is a freaking disaster. I'm so glad I'm married right now. But the, the essential bit of it is everybody's in it for themselves. Nobody is out there trying to provide, you know, God, I'm going to use too many of the words that they're, they're butchering, but nobody's providing value into a marriage now as a man or a woman and looking for that loyalty it's everybody's dating two or three people at the same time so you've got this idea that it's acceptable to be essentially cheating on people and only it's not cheating because you're not in a committed relationship it's like those are weasel words if you're dating multiple people sleeping with multiple people you're already you're already in a position to not have a stable marriage and but people are going into it with well i might as well date multiple people because the people i'm dating are dating other people and I also might as well get, get mine out of this, right? If I'm a woman, I should get all the gifts and dinners and, and things that he's willing to buy me. And if I'm a man, I should be just sleeping with as many women as are willing because that's the name of the game now. So everybody's in it for themselves. 
this isn't just with dating. This is everything now. So you have employer-employee relationship the same way. The, um, the bigger employers, you get some of this in small business, but the bigger corporate cubicle, uh, you know, Dilbert-esque um, employers are just trying to extract as much production out of their employees as possible and giving them as little in return. The employees, on the other hand, are trying to do the minimum amount of work possible to retain their jobs and just get everything for themselves. And not nobody's trying to be productive. Nobody's trying to create value anymore. It's just get mine from the other guy. Uh, SaaS is you know service uh, software as a service. SaaS is the poster child for this model of extract as much as you can from your customers. Give them the bare minimum product, and it's bare minimum minus because the products are garbage most of the time. They break down right away. So it's, again, get as much as I can out of the customer. Give them as little as in return. And uh, customers don't have brand loyalty anymore. It's like, oh, you're selling a thing for $100. I'll buy the Chinese knockoff for, for 60 because, you know, I can save a few bucks on it. Everybody's in it for themselves. And when everybody's in it for themselves across every single metric, now you have this Tinder effect across society. It's not sustainable. You know, you cannot have people, an entire society that's dedicated to themselves in every aspect of life. Uh, me first, me second. It just doesn't work. So, sorry, it's a bit ramp there. It's just kind of a general observation. Uh, no, I love the chance to, to bash on SaaS if I ever get the chance. So, you, SaaS, as you said, is the poster child for this model. Absolutely. You can feel, you can feel when a SaaS company has exhausted their revenue growth phase and starts trying to turn a profit, because the the, the software product just turns to shit in a hurry, and the the support turns to shit in a hurry, just terrible. Um, and that's on top of the fact that most of their software sucks anyway. Uh, and you can tell because if you just shop around within a particular industry or market, there's a wide variety of quality of software. There will be lots of leading companies, but several of them will be absolute dog shit software. And then you'll find the one that has good software and you're like, holy crap, this is exactly what I thought could happen. This is really easy to use. <laughs> and all these other companies have somehow driven their revenue with a terrible, terrible product. Um, and those companies, uh, you know, some people might say, oh, well, they've tapped into a customer need and, and the customers are eating the dog food. Okay, maybe, maybe, or else they just spent a shit ton of money on marketing and sales to juice their their user growth. And in reality, they've got a terrible product that's only going to get worse because product doesn't get better, it gets worse. They just accumulate tech debt and then they have to pull all their R&D funds uh, off their off their dev teams. So it's like, it, it's just, it's it's the same thing. It's, it's purely, it's paper thin. Um, there are very few things that are actually long-term quality anymore. Uh, and like with Airbnb, you can tell if you were, if you were a long-time Airbnb customer, you could feel the vibe shift between like 2012 and 2014. And that's that's a long time ago and hardly anybody was using Airbnb back then. But you could feel the vibe shift between when they they had tapped into their value proposition, they had exa exhausted the market for that value or for that for the people who wanted to, you know, have an air bed and breakfast, right? That just wanted, you know, cheap accommodations. And the and the hosts who were willing to have complete strangers in their house without getting sick of them. That, that market is actually very small. And so sometime around 2012, 2014, they essentially outgrew that market and pivoted into basically just an alternative to a hotel, like a full-scale hotel, uh, and in many ways more expensive than a hotel. And then now you can see them pivoting towards attempting to be profitable. And so now they're jacking up their fees a ton. And like Airbnb is a terrible experience now. I mean, I, I would say that after 2016, 2017, we pretty much stopped using Airbnb because it's such a terrible experience. That is the exact same model that almost every SaaS company follows that I see. Of course, my, you know, my experience is much more skewed towards VC-backed SaaS, so maybe not bootstrapped SaaS. Maybe bootstrapped SaaS is a much better quality company. I, I suspect it is, but they're also not the super prominent ones, right? There's very few bootstrapped SaaS companies that that I interact with regularly, at least. Most all of them are VC-backed. So everything is cheap. Everything is transactional. Everything is fake. Everything is just to show some sort of activity today and and be gone tomorrow. Same as the stock market. Uh, so yeah, totally agree there. Yeah, and it's it's everywhere, right? Like, so take your favorite influencer on Twitter uh, and what is half of their tweets? It's whatever they're selling. It's their course, it's their program, it's buy my product, or it's the things that they're sponsored to sell. 
and it's you know fifty percent of their, their tweets are just selling you a thing all the time. What happens as soon as you buy a product? Your email gets spammed two or three times a day from that business selling you the next product, and it's like I get the idea of you know, the marketing behind it. I understand all that. I understand why it works. I understand what you got to do. But as a consumer. I don't want more than one email a week from you to know about a new product. You really want a month is all I need. Whatever I bought from you, if I'm going to buy it again, I don't need you to remind me. And if you have something new, you don't, you don't have something new three times a day. And if you have a sale every single day, it's not a sale. That's just your normal price. And that's why like when I buy something, the very first thing I do is I uh, send that email to spam. I don't unsubscribe. I send it to spam. And yeah, that hurts them. It hurts their metrics because they have these dead dead emails going straight to spam. But you know what? That's your fault because you're spamming me three times a day with bullshit I don't need. So of course I'm going to send you to the spam box. Um, and it blows my mind that that's not normal. Like um, I think women love getting emails because every woman I talk to in my family, my wife, um, friends of my wife, whatever, their email inbox gets 30 emails a day of all the same spam. And it's like, you bought a house two years ago. Why are you looking at Zillow listings? You know, you stopped buying that protein shake. Why are you still allowing? They, they just, they just love getting the crap and it, it blows my mind, but I won't do that because it means you don't value me as a customer. You're just trying to get the next sale from me. You're not looking and saying, Hey, was this sale good? You know, are you satisfied with my product? It's, Hey, you bought this now buy more immediately buy more, you know, just give me more money. So, it's it's yeah. entirely because you're a man. <laughs> I totally agree. Women love getting spam emails. It blows my mind. They'll get fifty or hundred spam emails a day and be totally fine with. Um, whereas we're like, oh my god, this is maddening and insulting. But um, and this is also why Bowtie Bull emphasizes selling to women. Right? They make ninety percent of the uh, the purchasing decisions, uh, and they love it. They love doing it. So don't worry about offending all the guys. They weren't your market anyway. Your market was women, and they don't mind the emails. Yeah, and that's. Again, it's like, I, I totally understand the sales end of it. I understand why it works. I understand why that's what everybody's taught. That's why you do it. But it's part of the cheapening effect of, you know, everything is transactional. You're not a human being. You're a transaction. Give me money and then give me more money. And that's, it's business, it's employees, it's employers, it's dating, it's everything and more. And that's just not a sustainable way to move this society forward it's going to get worse if we don't start instilling some some values again and teaching uh, basic morality of provide value be valuable respect what, others what i see happening is that it will um diverge into two situations one is you'll have a digital presence right an online life and that'll be managed by, by your ai that's really good at filtering all this stuff at scale um and I mean, this is already happening, right? With your, with like a Gmail filter and stuff, right? Is you've got some sort of AI in there that's that's saying this is a real email, this isn't. Just the same thing, just on a, a, a broader scale and, and in many more interactions, right? So a lot of the services I buy are going to be managed by my AI, all that stuff. And then that will leave me to be able to have my in-person interactions with my small community that still behaves in the same way where where your personal brand and your reputation matters and direct relationships matter. So I think it'll, it'll naturally kind of morph into that situation and we won't have to deal as much with this crap. Um, but that's going to take some time. Yeah. And, but that's, you know, that's just part of it. It's getting people face to face to treat other people as not a transaction, not a source of what can I get from you? Right? Uh, the dating world is not going to get better until people, Sorry, I uh, wasn't sure that my microphone was still on there for a second. Um, sorry, small technical glitch, guys. Anyways, I'm back. Um, no, the dating world's not going to get better until people stop looking at, you know, the opposite sex as, what can you give me? You know, is this a place to stick my dick? Is this a free meal? Is this free, you know, are you going to buy me things? And instead of going back to the, are you going to be the, the mother or father of my children? Are you going to be a that type of screening mechanism, not... Not the, what can I get for myself right now? Um, the employer-employee relationship is going to get a lot worse when it's just churn them in, churn them out, uh, you know, extract as much as you can before they burn out. And the employees coming in going, I will leave for 25 cents an hour more. You know, I'm going to do the bare minimum work and then I'm going to uh, bolt before you can fire me, right? That, that mindset is not going to help uh, 
the economy, the production, um, and we're not gonna be able to scale businesses on that, that model. So, so at some point this has got to change, but we can start it, you know, individually, we can start by teaching our children not to date in a selfish manner. We can, uh, run our businesses as a, I'm going to help my employees be the best they can, even if that means they have to get a job later. I'm not just going to work them and extract what I can from them. And likewise, we, we sell a product to our, our customers with a, this is valuable. I'm going to give you a warranty on my value for this product or service, right? Uh, we go back to those metrics. Maybe that, that model will be able to expand because it will be the most valuable one out there. I think it just has to have some sort of barriers around it to protect it. Because imagine you have a, you raise a daughter who's very trusting and, and invests herself in a relationship and she moves to the city and meets a bunch of Tinder guys. She's going to get, she's going to get screwed over, man. Um, you just, <laughs> again, it's like same reason that fathers doc, lock their daughters in a, uh, <laughs> up until they're 16 or 18 years old, at least. Um, but it's the same, it's the same example writ large, right? If you're trusting and you manage your reputation you're, you're also seen as a small town hick who is uh, easily duped, right? When you go to the big city. So you just have to have these barriers that prevent, um, that prevent, uh, you know, people who don't follow the same morals and values from taking advantage of you. And, uh, I mean, the, the classic example of this was either just geographical separation or literal borders. Um, but the internet and, and mass migration is, has ruined both. And so, now all of these high trust communities are being infiltrated by people who come from very low trust to low cooperation societies, and they're playing by a whole different rule book. And it just they they just destroy what they touch. Yeah, I'm by no means saying what I'm saying. We're trying to a, tr- a high trust society, uh, trying to say that we have this naivete, setting yourself to get screwed over. Barriers are absolutely needed, and you know. We could sit here all day throwing out what potential barriers might look like and also shooting them down. Um, you know, the, the whole, well, you know, uh, like you'll see a lot of the daily wire guys will come out and say, Oh, all this dating stuff can be, be settled by just, just marry a virgin from church. It's like, yeah, okay. And, and ride out on a unicorn because neither of those exist. You know, um, your barriers actually have to work. Um, I don't certainly don't have the answers to all of this. I just know where we need to end up, but, um, yeah, you know, the, the more barriers you could think of that, enabled you to have a trusting society barriers probably isn't the right word it's probably more like filters and and verification systems um yeah it's you need to make sure that your morality cannot be uh hijacked by bad actors yeah i agree um I i like how you said uh filters instead of barriers that's probably the better metaphor for the 21st century um barriers are are notoriously easy to, to overcome in some manner, like over time, they all crumple, crumble, but, uh, um, you know, maybe a filter is something that can be adapted over time. And, uh, and there's probably technology that enables that, but, um, I didn't have that much more to say about, uh, this stuff. I'd, I'd probably just end up repeating myself. Yeah. Same. So before we hit record, uh, you were talking to me, you were telling me that how the, the fatherhood skills that you've developed in regulating, uh, Remy juniors, uh, emotions are almost the same as regulating the emotions of your employees. Um, you want to kind of comment on that? Yeah. Uh, it, it was kind of surprising to me. I just kind of had this revelation the other day that I end up using almost all the same tactics, um, with managing employees as I, as I do with managing my kids. Right. So <laughs> you just start to see everyone around you as, um, you know, they're, their children in some respect, either they're dependent on you or they need your help or they need you to help them. They need your help getting through their day and managing their emotions. It's just funny how much there is, right? Because how much of that there is, because there's just so few people these days who are well-adjusted, competent, reasonable, uh, stable adults. Uh, so many people are needing, you know, lots of support to get through their day. Uh, so there's just a lot of that, but, um, um, and it's very rare that I that I encounter somebody in a really really masculine environment anymore. So uh, it's in that situation you're pretty much if you're not presenting a father role, you're probably not providing value to them. They probably need something from you that you're not. I wonder if there's a correlation between the owner operator business and men who don't have kids or men whose adult children no longer speak to them. Right. Like meaning the, 
the men that aren't able to branch out and have multiple employees also don't have a healthy emotional relationship with their children or um, when their children were, you know, they may have adult children now, but when their kids were kid kids, when they were, you know, five, 10 years old, if they didn't have a good relationship with them. And I wonder, I just wonder if there's a correlation between that or not. Absolutely. The better a father you are, the better employer you are. In my personal experience, absolutely. The better father you are, the better, the better you are at, at creating an empire that, that everybody wants to be a part of. Um, whereas the father that struggles to, to raise his kids appropriately and, um, and nurture them when they need nurturing and challenge them when they need challenging, he doesn't know how to do that right. He's going to struggle as, as a boss and he's going to be a solo solopreneur uh, or that guy who just churns through employees and then decides it's not worth it anymore. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great observation. I didn't realize until you said it. Well, and there's, God, this is a rabbit hole on its own, so I'll try to try to give the, the shorter version of it. But the there's a lot of men who they just put their head down, they work 50 hours a day, they go home, they're physically, mentally exhausted, and they just, they don't have the energy to father, right? And that's being the kindest version. There's also the men who just don't want to be involved and they want to dump it all on their wives. And you're seeing the masculinity hustlers come out and say, well, that's the correct answer. Men aren't supposed to be parenting their kids at the, what that's what the wife is there for. You know, he's supposed to make all the money and provide, and she's supposed to do the parenting. And they want to have this detached relationship with their kid. They're encouraging it. And it's like, that's not what being a father is. It's like, you have very distinct duties as a father interacting with your, and a lot of men simply don't have the energy for it or the will. And you can see the results. Now it's still a better scenario than the single mom raising a kid with no father. But having a father who's physically in the house but not emotionally present, um, that has an effect. And you know, I'm just wondering if this uh, masculinity hustler uh, take on parenting is going to um, become contagious. And if we're going to see more of these detached, uninvolved fathers and what that's going to mean, like as you as, as the employer are going to have a bigger pool of um, people who you have to play daddy to and teach them to regulate their emotions as adults. Uh, you know, it's just kind of a theorizing there, uh, putting a bunch of shit together. Maybe maybe that doesn't happen, or maybe on things, I don't know, kind of rambling. So you were saying that, that maybe he meant to be a good father, but he was just so exhausted from working that he just couldn't manage both at the same time? That's the, the better of the two versions, right? There are men who just, and right now we're, we're in a, we're, we're in a silent recession right now. So you have men who are just working endlessly to provide, right? And, and you have husbands and wives are both working, you know, insane hours right now just to pay the bills. So it's understandable that you are physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted from working massive hours at oftentimes very stressful, physically and mentally stressful jobs. And you've got nothing left to give to your kids. And that's, that's sad. That's a tragedy because that's not necessarily what they want. But you also have the men who they just want to come home from work and watch sports ball and play video games and be completely detached from their kids. Uh, they want their wife to be more of a mommy who brings them milk and cookies and serves them dinner uh, versus being a, a interacting on any kind of family level, right? So I understand the men that are exhausted, and I hope they can rectify that. You know that that type of exhaustion is is temporary and not a lifelong thing. It's more the men who want to be detached from their family. And again, it's that transactional nature, right? They want for themselves first and their family second. So they, yeah, they provide financially, they pay the bills, get a nice big house, but then they would rather go to the bar than, you know, play with their kids after school. They would rather go have a girlfriend than, than have a date night with their wife. They would rather come home and watch TV and play video games than get on the ground and play with their kids. Those are the ones I really take issue with. Yeah, completely understand what you're talking about. And, and that was actually my, my best childhood friend's dad was exactly that. Just literally did not care in the slightest about being a dad. It was a complete inconvenience to him. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't understand why those guys, maybe they don't realize it until they have families and then they're like, oh shit, that sucks. And, or <laughs> is it like, uh, do you think they're programmed that way from the start? And then the wife just needs to do a better job of vetting that before having a family with him? Or is it like, well, and how does this, you know, how in uh, the masculinity hustlers, and I think this comes from Rollo, um, emphasize making yourself as the mental point of origin. 
sounds an awful lot like that. Yeah. And it's, it's, so I haven't read Rollo's book in over a year, a couple of years actually. So, but I get the gist of it, but I don't know his exact point, but there's, there's a difference between making yourself the, the mental point of origin versus like putting your wife on a pedestal and worshiping her. Right. When you make her the point of origin and you just worship her, she's going to look at look down upon you. And that often hurts a marriage. But when you, when, when you make yourself the point of origin and you don't understand what that's about, it just becomes me first. It's me, me, me get mine first. My family is here to serve me when that, when that's how you interpret it. That's where things fall apart. Um, that's where you wind up with resentful kids. That's where you wind up with a resentful wife. Uh, so there's a big difference between um, putting your family first and putting your family on a pedestal. Again, I'm trying to remember exactly what he wrote. I know I'm not getting all of it, uh, but I know people misinterpret that. And that's why I take issue with a lot of what these guys write. It's not necessarily that what they're writing is wrong. It's that it's interpreted wrong. Uh, you got to remember, people have a sixth grade reading comprehension. And that also means they have a sixth grade vocabulary, you know, verbal comprehension. So if you're not very specific about how you outline that stuff, you wind up with this masculinity hustler, me first society. And that just doesn't benefit. So both of the examples I gave happened in my family. My grandfather was the me first guy. Uh, my dad pretty, and his brothers pretty much raised themselves because my grandfather was, if he wasn't working a side job, he was working a side girlfriend, right? He was never in the house. He was working, he worked his his 40 hour a week job, he worked his side business, and then he had his girlfriends. So um, there was no interaction, there was no him being a dad. Um, my dad, for the first probably 10 or 15 years of my life, he was working 70, 80 hours a week just to get by. He worked for other people, he had his side business, he eventually made his side business his real business, his real business to hit, hit real world problems. And he could never stop working. He had employees costing him money. He had people scam him. He had a, a wife, a second wife who was freaking stealing from him left and right. So now in my forties, I can understand why he worked so much and why he was so exhausted and wasn't able to be present. And in my twenties and thirties, we repaired our relationship because he finally had the time that he never had when I was a kid. And I was able to forgive the situation because I, I understood it. You know, kids don't understand that. They don't understand financial problems. They don't understand people stealing. They don't get that you're building a business and that other people's lives and livelihood are on the line with your success. They don't understand that there's second and third order effects of dad not working 70 hours. Adults understand that. Now in my 40s, I'm very appreciative of what he did because I can understand it and building my own businesses and working those hours myself. I, I totally get it. Um, so I got to see both ends of that, right? I got to see the father who was all in it for himself and the father who was so dedicated to paying the bills, he had nothing left to give. And I, now that I'm hopefully soon going to be a father, I'm really trying to maneuver myself to be in that position to be able to scale back on work and business, stop growing the business and work on being a dad. And being That's my intent. That's everything I'm setting up now with my farm and my Wi-Fi business is to be a present father present in a way that even the tradcons don't uh, aren't trying to offer I'm, I'm going to be if everything works out well i'll be as present as my life is homeschooling and farming and and working and being there for my kids the way most fathers wish they could be but aren't and um anyway long rant again yeah so a common theme we're seeing these days is that uh, you know there's this saying that uh having kids or, you know, becoming an adult will make you understand your parents better. And Gen, Gen, uh, Gen Z, definitely millennials are saying, no, it's actually the opposite. I'm, I'm understanding my parents less and less as I'm becoming an adult and getting responsibility and, and seeing the world very differently than But it sounded like in your situation, it was true that you understood him more and more as you got older and understood the sacrifices he had to make and, and how much it cost him and how much he wanted to be than what he was. Um, but I, I'm still thinking about that prior comment about making yourself the mental point of origin. I'm wondering if maybe the reason that's become so popular is not necessarily that that's really the rule to follow, but just that men are such simps these days that you have to make this exaggerated point to pull people back to the happy medium between simping and me first uninvolved. Yeah, there's that too. And it's, look, if you take Rollo's advice, it works. 
for a given type of man and a given type of woman. If you take Tate's advice, it works for a given type of man and a given type of woman. If you go to any of the Daily Wire guys and um, you know take their advice, it would work, again, for a given type of man and a given type of woman. The problem is, like we said earlier this episode, you don't know the true nature of the person you're with for at least six months. Um, you know, there's a place for the detached father and the um, detached wife. That what a lot of these masculinity hustlers are selling. There's plenty of women who would rather have a would rather have money than a functional, loving relationship with their husband. That's fine. You can have that type of thing. There are plenty of um, tradcon Christian women who would love to play housemaker to a tradcon husband who would you know there's plenty of women out there who would rather their husband never touch a dirty dish touch the stove or the the washing machine and there are plenty of men who would love to be paired up with those those women likewise there's enough men out there who don't give a shit about doing domestic chores um and women who don't care if the husband likes makes less money than she does all these things exist all these scenarios exist um but you have to it all comes down to filtering for the right people and when these marriages are, or are not marriages, but the whole, the whole dating realm is based off of manipulation and lies in order to get mine first, the wrong people are pairing up. And then you have these, these women who are married to video game adult children. Um, you have these women who, or excuse me, men who would rather stay at home with their kids, but they're with a woman who um, is capable of making the money, but doesn't respect him for not making more. Uh, the women who would respect a man for making less money are, you know, definitely with the wrong guys. It's just, it, it's, everything's matched up the wrong way. Like I, I got to wonder if an AI dating service would be able to solve, uh, filter all this out because it'd be, it'd be able to look beyond manipulations and lies. Um, but now I'm in the realm of fucking science fiction. So um, I think I've hit the point where I'm just going to be rambling more than making sense now. So I think it's a good time to call this episode. Uh, do you have anything you would like to add? just the the basic theme of the episode everything these days is transactional or almost everything is so you have to develop a very good filter and use it use it use it be disciplined be patient quality takes time always has yes um very much agree with that so i think that's a good place to stop it um so with that not sure what platform to listen to this with but it's going to be posted initially on substack so you can always find us at wi-fi pioneers at substack I am back on Twitter or X, excuse me, as um, it is Colt Wi-Fi Farmer at X. So you can find me there as well. I'm making any comments on Twitter. The Twitter presence is new. It's very, very low at the moment, but I'll probably start building it up again. But mostly everything's happening on Substack. So you can find us there. Uh, with that, everybody have a good weekend. And remember, nobody's coming to save you. It's up to you to save yourselves.